morning, good morning, everyone. Hope you're doing great. Would love for you to be praying with us this afternoon as we head to Mexico to our Tijuana campus, and we're actually looking at a facility that we could potentially lease down there. I think we have the picture if you want to put that up right now, and God has been expanding us down there, and we're hoping for our first semi-permanent home. So there's Jonathan walking in front of it. He's probably calling me uh, right then and telling me about it. So we'll be there this afternoon as we meet tonight at the church. Pray for that. And also, let me just show you a picture of this new facility that we got with our offices. And there is the auditorium, 5555. Five is the number of grace in the Bible, people. That's a good sign for us. And we'll be launching our third service as people come back in from vacation and all the college students start flooding back in. We'll be launching our third service there. It's just a block and a half this way. So excited about all that's going on. If you have your Bible, turn with us to 2 Corinthians. We're in our Heart for the House series, and we are going to dive into the Word of God starting in chapter 4. So I read a, a story this week of some parents that had two very mischievous sons. They were always getting in trouble for stealing. They stole balls from the sporting goods store. They stole cookies from the bakery. They stole candy bars from the convenience store. All of the parents' efforts for reforming their children were returning void. And so they heard of a minister in town who had been successful in disciplining young children. And so they asked him if they could bring their boys to him in a last-ditch effort. Well, the minister says, yes, you can, but I want to see them individually. So the parents send in the eight-year-old first, the younger one first, and he comes in to the minister's massive office, the minister's looming behind his big oak desk, and in order to intimidate this little eight-year-old that sits down, he looks at this young boy and says, son, where is God right now? And the little boy's eyes grow all big and but he doesn't say anything. So again, he gets even more stern, and he said, son, I said, where is God right now? And the little boys, his knees start knocking together. He's, he's scared, but he still doesn't say anything. He's just looking around, and finally the minister, to just drive in his point, he slams down his fist and says, son, I said, where is God right now? And at this moment, the little eight-year-old jumps up, runs out of the office, runs all the way home into his house, into his closet, and shuts the door. Well, his 10-year-old older brother comes after him and says, what happened? What happened? What did the minister say? And the boy says, God is missing, and they think we stole him. (laughs) You know, ministers can be somewhat intimidating at different times. And so I I think it's interesting that 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1, starts this way. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. We have this ministry. I want to tell you today, people of God, that you are called to the ministry. You, each one of you, say, I am called to the ministry. I am called to ministry. Now look at your neighbor and say, you called to the ministry. I didn't say you're called. I said you called to the ministry. You are called to the ministry. And so oftentimes we think that the ministry is just for the professional people who stand up on stage that had a certain amount of schooling or training. But the Bible is very clear. If you look at the book of Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 12, it says this that he gave 
some to be apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Who are the saints? Exactly, it's you. God called people into these church offices to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. If I do all the work of the ministry, if my staff does all the work of the ministry, then we're actually failing because you are the ones that are called to do the work of the ministry. I remember the first time I ever contemplated being a minister. I was in this very large theatrical production. It was an outside event so big that there were big stagecoaches that came through, horses, people shooting blanks. It was a Western-type uh, theatrical presentation, and I was kind of the lead kid in the play. The, there was hundreds of people in the grandstands watching us, and my part, kind of my one moment of fame, was the story went like this. Us kids, as we were pioneers, we had a pet frog. And that pet frog that we all loved so much had died. And in order to comfort all the little girls that were in our friendship group, I had decided in this play, as the main kid, to have a burial service for this frog. And so I'm sitting there, there's a hole dug in the ground, there's all these kids surrounding me looking at me, and I'm serving as the pastor in this funeral for this frog, and I, my, my big line was, now we bury the frog in the name of the Father and of the Son and in the hole you go. Maybe you'll get that in a minute. And I remember sitting at that moment in that play thinking, Man, it would be horrible to be a minister because everyone's looking at you, expecting you to have the right things to say at every moment. And I think that's how many of us feel when we talk about you being called to the ministry. You think, man, I could never do that. I don't have all the words to say. Man, I don't think my life is perfect, but yet God calls us to do the work of the ministry. And what is the work of the ministry? The work of the ministry is to reflect Jesus. The work of the ministry is just to look at him and fall in love with him and be transformed into his image. Then we share the gospel and we make disciples. It's that simple. And the scripture goes on to say, because we have this work of ministry, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. I remember a time in life where I lost heart. I was leaving a doctor's office I had this horrible heart condition, and I had just received very bad news from my cardiologist. He said, you will never return to sports again, and you're going to have to go under the knife. You're going to have to have a pacemaker put in your chest. You'll never be able to be active like you once were. I walked out of there. I'm talking to my mom. I'm so angry, and I look at my mom, and I say, I'd rather die than that happen to me. Why? Because my purpose in life was athletics. I was a football player. I wanted to throw the winning pass. I was a soccer player. I wanted to kick the winning goal. I was a swimmer. I wanted to beat out and win the race of all my opponents. And at that moment, my purpose was taken away from me, so I lost heart. I want to ask you today, what is your purpose in life? What is your purpose in life? Because I find that many people's purpose is to make money. Or many people's purpose is to advance in their job. Or many people's purpose is I just want to get married someday. And we have these different purposes. And so often we find that the rug is pulled out from us in life and we lose heart. You know, one of the interesting phenomena is going on 
in our country in the past three decades has been that men have enough uh, money at 60 or 65 to retire, women as well, and they come to a place of retirement, they're so excited to, be, to finally be done with their job, and then they finish and they go into a depression, and some even die. And as it's been studied, one of the main reasons they found is they don't feel like they have a purpose anymore in life. Their purpose throughout their life was this job, and when that purpose is gone, they lose heart and they might even die. In fact, there's an interesting study uh, in the Boston Globe recently, and there was a TED Talk about this, that there are people having what they call a quarter-life crisis, not a midlife crisis, a quarter-life crisis, like 22, 23-year-olds who their whole focus has been academic achievement. They put everything into being successful in school, and they graduate, and all of a sudden they go, what do I do with my life? And they go into a depression, and they feel despair. I want to tell you that your purpose was never supposed to be just advancing in a job. It was never supposed to be just making money. It was never even supposed to be ultimately getting married or having this great relationship. Your purpose is to be a minister for Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you, when you lock in on that purpose, no one can steal it away. You can be a minister as a young child. You can be a minister when they're pushing you around in the nursing home. You can be a minister single. You can be a minister dating. You can be a minister married. You can be a minister if you're divorced. God has called you to reflect Jesus. And no one can take it away from you. You think, my life is, is, is chaotic. My life has been turned upside down. But you can still look at Jesus, be transformed into his image, and share the gospel and make disciples. Now look at this next verse. It says this. It goes on to say in verse 2, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. Well, what does that have to do with having this ministry? You know, the interesting thing about last week, who was here to hear Remy preach? Oh, so, it was so amazing. You know, he is just spouting out these verses. It was powerful. But here's the, the only disadvantage of having something like that happen. You see a guy up there, and he's like quoting 80 scriptures from memory, and you're going, man, I could never do that. And then while he's quoting it, he's doing this, and his bicep's like hitting up against his head because it's twice as big as his waist. And you're looking at him and going like, Dude, are you a preacher? Are you a WWF wrestler? Are you an action hero? You know, and you're, I could never be that. You're thinking that. Do you know one of the most powerful ways that you can be a minister is to not have a double life? You know, so many times we look at people and go, well, I can't preach like that, or I don't have that many scriptures in my head, or I don't have that gift to sing that way. I just don't have these gifts and talents. And I want to tell you one of the most powerful ways that you can minister the life of Jesus is just not living a duplistic life, not saying one thing and having a secret sin back in the closet. And so Paul says we've renounced secret and shameful ways. There's been so much pain in the body of Christ and so much shame around the world because preachers who have these amazing giftings get up and say one thing, but behind closed doors, they're living in sin. And I want to tell you that my life was transformed, not by some great preacher, but by a young woman who just practiced what she preached. She lived the authentic life of Jesus. And perhaps you think today, well, Robert, yeah, I mean, that's my problem. I could never 
be a minister of Jesus because I have sin in my life. You know, you don't know what I've done in my past. I, I feel shame. I, I'm, I'm, I, I, I've done sinful acts. I, I'm disqualified. No. The Bible says this in 1 John. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Say you have sin in your life, just confess it. Don't keep it in the dark. That's exactly what the enemy wants you to do. He, he lurks in darkness, but when you flip on the lights and you come out with your sin and you share your past, the, the enemy is defeated. And the power of God comes on your life. His light shines on us, and it defeats the power of darkness over our life. Have you confessed your sin? Have you brought it out? Is there something in your life that no one knows about? If there is, then it owns you. I want to tell you, you're not going to shock people when you confess your sin. Instead, you're going to shock the enemy off you. Because he can't hold on if you're not holding on to secrets. The Bible says this anyway. What we do in secret is going to be shouted from the rooftop. So I would rather bring it out than have it exposed about me. So confess your sins and watch the enemy flee from you and then get to work. Scripture goes on to say this. In verse 2, the second part, we do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. I want to zero in on that phrase, by setting forth the truth plainly, by setting forth the truth plainly. This is what we are called to do as followers of Jesus. We're supposed to make the truth about who he is and what he has done plainly. You know, occasionally someone will, will come up and complain and say, you know, pastor, why are you always just teaching so practical, so basic. I, I want to go on to the high and lofty revelation and, and the mysteries of the Bible. And, and I'm always like, great, man, I, I want you to dive in. But when we gather together, God has called us to make plain the truth of the gospel. I mean, give me a break. We just preached through the book of Revelation. But we make it plain and we make it practical and we make it simple because we believe the greatest thing that can happen to someone is not just get some information, but to come and hear the gospel and get some transformation. Like we're not just into information. Some, sometimes people want more and more information. Teach me the, the deep secrets and teach me the truths that no one else knows, but it's really just to feel good about yourself. Wow, I'm this mature Christian that knows all this stuff, but then your life doesn't reflect the gospel. And instead, we want to make it plain. I, I, I think about the illustration of a ski slope. I don't know if you've ever been snow skiing before. Every once in a while, I get to go snow skiing. And I'm always fascinated when you drive up how many people are there. And you, you go onto the mountain, and it's just thick with crowds. And the reason is there's something for everyone. You know, you go, and the first thing you see is the bunny slope, right? And why is it called a bunny slope? Because bunnies hurt no one. Like, you can't get hurt by a bunny, right? So if you fall, it's like cuddling with the snow, you know? And so there you are on the bunny slope. It, it, there's like zero degree of, de uh, of incline. And, and, and people on the bunny slopes, you know, they're all scared, and they're kind of being pulled along by poles. But there's tons of people. Why? Because 
That's where you're learning the basics. You're learning the snowplow. You're learning to use your poles and bend your knees. Then from the bunny slopes, there's the green slope. And, and, and there's not as many people on the green slope as the bunny slope, but there's still a lot of people. Why? Because it's easy, and it's wide, and it's gradual, and people are starting to get the hang of it. And then there's the blue, a little more challenging, but still pretty attainable for most people who've skied, maybe once or twice, and then you go to the black. And the blacks are narrow, and you stand at the top, and you're looking straight down, and they're moguls, and you have to do this. And then there's the double black diamond. You know, on these people, they ski like James Bond. You know, they're doing the back scratch and the, the 360s. And, but I remember one of the most scarring experiences of my little sister's life was when my cousin, who had spent a whole winter skiing in Colorado, took us skiing, and my sisters were still learning, and she took us up on a, on a black diamond. And my little sisters, it was like they were hanging from a skyscraper about to fall. They're like hanging on the side of the mountain going, ah! like clawing the mountain, you know, and I'm like, uh, you can stand up, you know, they're like, no! <clears throat> Why? Because they had been pushed beyond what they could handle in the beginning. You know, a, a, a ski instructor, on their day off, they're going to be on the double black diamond. They're going to be, you know, doing the beautiful figure eights with other people, doing the helicopter jumps, all these things. But when they're working, what do they do? They're on the bunny slope, helping people, teaching them, walking people in, teaching them the sport of skiing. That is how we want to be as a church. We want to teach people the simple truths of the gospel so they can get saved. That's how we want to be as a church. We want to teach people how to make disciples. I don't... I don't really, I'm not too impressed if someone knows all this information, but they're not doing the work of the ministry. I want them to know how to lay hands on the sick and them to be made well, right? I care a lot more about you doing the work of Jesus than knowing all these extraneous facts, but it leads to no transformation in your life, amen? So Paul says we set forth the truth plainly because there's nothing more powerful than someone coming in and being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his glorious light. There's nothing more powerful than someone getting set free by the power of the gospel. And I love it when people come in and hands are laid on them and they're healed. So we want to learn to do the simple, plain works of Jesus. And then in your own time with the Lord, you dive deep and you study and, and pray and spend the whole day praying in the spirit if you want to and let your shadow heal everyone you see. I want that to happen. But when we come together, let's raise up a whole army of people who know how to walk with Jesus. Amen? It says this, verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, the God of this age has blinded the minds of believers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So let us break this down for a minute. It says the God of this age. Who is the God of this age? And, and you notice it's not capitalized in Scripture. Who is the God of this age? Who's this Scripture talking about? Satan, exactly. And what he has done is he's blinded the minds of unbelievers. Andrew, can you come up and help me real quick? When you go up to talk to someone who doesn't know Jesus yet, they have been blinded. The scripture says 
that they cannot see the light of the gospel. It is veiled to those who are perishing. Now, Andrew is not blind to the gospel. He actually leads our intercession team here, which I'm very thankful for. But let's take, for example, that Andrew is someone I'm sharing the gospel with. The Bible says, if he doesn't know Jesus, that there is a veil on him. Step forward a little, buddy. So it's like this. <clears throat> I come up to my friend and I go, Andrew, isn't God amazing? Can you see all that he's done for me? I think that's a no. He can't see it because there is a veil on his eyes. So we're saying, can't you see? I mean, look at creation. Isn't it amazing? Doesn't it point to a creator? But he has a veil on him, so he can't see. The enemy is trying to veil our friends and family who are not believers from seeing God. That is the enemy's work. If he can keep them veiled, they will not come to Christ and be saved. That's what he wants to do. So it's our job to come and try to get this veil off of them. But, you know, you're pulling it and you're saying, hey, can't you see? Can't you see? And it's not working. It's not working. So how do we take this veil off the eyes of unbelievers? you got to have something to cut through the veil. You know, when Jesus died, the Bible says that the veil was ripped from top to bottom. How do we rip this veil? You need something sharp. The Bible says this in Hebrews chapter 4, that the word of God is living and active, and it's sharper than a double-edged sword. You need a sword to cut the veil off of your unbelieving friends and family. You can't do it in your own strength. You need the sword of the Spirit. Ephesians 6, 17 says, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We need to yield the Word of God against the veil. <laughs> He's not nervous because he can't see anything. <laughs> so how do you do this? I remember watching my first mentor, Mark Masterson, and he would see a friend like Andrew, and his heart would break for a lost friend. I think all of us have a lost family member. We have a, a lost coworker. We have a lost student that sits next to us. We have a lost neighbor on our street, and we so want them to come to know Jesus. But when we talk to him, it's just like there's a veil. So the first thing you do with the Word of God, which is a sharp, double-edged sword, is you pray the Word of God. Pray the word of God. Mark Masterson would, would quote these scriptures. He'd say, Lord, for Andrew, I just quote Isaiah 64. Oh, Lord, that you'd rend the heavens and come down. And that the mountains would tremble before you as, as fire causes twigs to blaze and water to boil. Won't you come and make your name known in the midst of your enemies that the nations would know you. And he's just praying the word of God. See, when the word of God goes forth, the Bible says it won't return void. It won't return null. So you pray the word of God. Mark Masterson would always pray John 16, 8, Holy Spirit, when you come, you convict the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. God, come and convict Andrew of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. And you're just going after this veil. You're cutting this veil with the word of God. Now, the second thing you do is you share the word of God with someone. You know, you have an opportunity. Andrew and I are, are, are out at lunch, and I share my story, and, 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 and I'm saying, you know, Andrew, God changed my life. But I don't just stop there. I say, hey, what I realized is that I had a sin problem, and the wages of sin is death. And so I start cutting with that sword. The wages of sin is death. But the scripture says that the gift of God is eternal life 
through Jesus Christ. And I'm just using the sword. And the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For he himself bore our sins on the cross so that we could die to sin and live for righteousness. The Bible says that the word of God is living and active. And so when you're sharing the word of God, it's powerful. It's cutting that veil upon his eyes. The Bible also says that faith comes from hearing the word of God. So we need to get the word of God. We need to get the word of God active in the life. And all of a sudden, whoop, whoa, we just rip that veil right off. Come on, man. It's the word of God. <laughs> awesome. Would you, would you go get the veil for me? Thank you so much. Here we go. So let me just keep going here. I, actually, I need you again. Come on up. Verse 5, you're going to get saved again, uh, which is impossible. Verse 5, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. You see this, the light, the light, the light, the light, the light shining out of darkness. As a kid, I really loved flashlights. I just, I think flashlights are so cool. Any, any flashlight fans out there? So when they actually put a flashlight app on the iPhone, oh, it just made my day. I'm like, are you serious? I can always have a flashlight in my pocket at all times. Hey, if you have a flashlight app, turn it on for a second. Just show me your flashlight apps. All right. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. All right, so we got these flashlight apps right now. We look like we're at a concert. The Bible says this, let your light shine before man. Can you put your veil? Oh, you already have your veil back on. Way to go. It says, let your light shine before men so that they can see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So a lot of times we think, I'm going to take my light and go up and shine it in my unbeliever's face. Look, he can't see anything. Why? Because he has a veil on his face. But the Bible says this, let your light shine before men so that they can see your good works. Andrew can't see, he, he can't see spiritually, but what he can see is just the next step that he needs to take in life. And he's like, man, as, as you would be as an unbeliever without God in this world, you're like, man, I'm just walking on uncertain ground. What do I do next? And you come as a believer and just shine the light. Can you see that light? Yeah, you can actually see it because it's right before you. And you just say, Andrew, come on. Let's go this way. Let's go this way. Let, let me show you the difference. Take the veil off for a second. I loved it as a kid. The reason I love flashlights is I was often hiking with my dad in the forest. And we'd be out at dark, pitch black. And you feel pretty vulnerable. You feel pretty insecure. But my dad would always take the flashlight and put it right in front of my feet. And so I could see where I was going. So I loved how light was coming into darkness to illuminate my path. What you don't like is when some wise guy comes up with a flashlight and is like, hey, look at this. Oh, that's not cool, right? It blinds you. You never appreciate when someone's shining a light in your eyes. The Bible says, let your light shine before men. It doesn't say shine your light in their face. But that's so often what we do. When we think about being a minister for Jesus, when we think about sharing the gospel, we're like, man, I'm just going to go up to him and say, hey, Andrew, you're in sin, 
right? Turn or burn, baby. No, that's not, that's not what the Bible is calling us to do. So Andrew's sick. You don't go up and be like, hey, Andrew, you're sick because you're in sin and you'll probably die and go to hell. No, that, that's not what you want to say to your friend when they're sick. Instead, the Bible says, let your light shine before men. Andrew, I'm so sorry you're sick. Hey, I brought you a bowl of soup. Yeah, and also, I want to pray for you, man. I want to pray that God would heal you. And so often, in someone's need, God breaks through. They receive a touch from God, and they come to know Jesus. Say Andrew lost his job. I don't come up and say, well, you lost your job because you're a sinner, and everything's going to go bad for you. You didn't, you didn't ever deserve to have a job to begin with. No, that's not what you say. You go up and you say, hey, bro, I am so sorry that happened. Can I take you out to lunch? And you bless them. You serve them through a good deed. And then you say, hey, man, you know, I love Jesus, and, and he answers prayers. I'm going to pray that God gives you an even better job. And then something happens, and what happens? So often your friends come back and say, hey, I got a great job. Thanks for praying. And that's an open door to share more with them. Are you seeing what we want to do is we want to shine our light before people and we want to serve them and we want to bless them with good deeds so that they see our good works and praise our Father in heaven. Let's give Andrew a hand as he takes off. Thanks, brother. Let's go back to this end of this verse. It says, he made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Do you know that the glory of God is displayed in the face of Christ? Have you ever gotten caught up in just gazing at the face of Jesus? I mean, this is what separates our faith from a religion and makes it a relationship. Because it's not about you just saying, what are the rules? Give me the rules. I'm going to do this. I'm not going to do that. Instead, you get lost in the face of Jesus. I just love to, to read scripture and to think about what did the face of Jesus look like when he healed blind Bartimaeus. And, and the first sight that blind Bartimaeus ever had is he opened his eyes and there's the face of Jesus. Those eyes of compassion. Probably the, 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 the crow's feet in his eyes from just that smile that's so often on his face. Those lips that just show kindness and acceptance. Or maybe it's the thorn-pierced brow where he took the crown of thorns on our behalf. Or maybe it's from Revelation, the eyes of fire and the face like the sun and the hair glowing white in all its radiance. Do you ever just get lost in the face of Jesus? Because you see, this is our ultimate ministry. This whole chapter started coming off of 2 Corinthians 3, and this is the last verse I want to read. It says this, and we all, with unveiled faces, Beholding the glory of the Lord, the glory of Jesus. Beholding the glory of Jesus are being transformed into the same image. When you behold the glory of Jesus, you start to get transformed. You know, if you stared at the sun, it will start to sear your eyes. But when you stare at Jesus, he starts to sear your image into his own. 
He starts changing you, and you start reflecting his glory to a hurting and broken world, and we're transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Have you got caught up, church, in the glory of the face of Jesus? It's what a dying and broken world needs. Why don't you stand up? And why don't you close your eyes, and I just want to pray over you, Lord Jesus, I pray that we would be people who do the work of the ministry and that is gazing upon you, being transformed into your image and sharing your good news with the world around us. And would you just ask God right now what needs to change in your life today, how you can come to him. Maybe there's unconfessed sin that you just need to start confessing to him right now and bring it before him. He already sees it. But you just partner with him and agree with him so he can just wash you white as snow. Maybe you, you want to be more bold in your workplace or in your schools. I don't know what it is, but just let God search your heart in these moments. And I never like to end a service without giving people an opportunity to start a friendship. Maybe you'd say, yeah, Robert, like what you're talking about, I thought this was all about religion and rules. And I want religion and rules. And I want to actually have a friendship where I look at the face of Jesus, where I, I actually know him, where he becomes my friend. If, if you wouldn't say that Jesus is your friend, but you say, today I want to start that kind of friendship. If you don't know if you're going to spend eternity with him in heaven, if you're not 100% sure, but you want that. You want him to live in your life. You want him to take over. You're tired of leading your own life and you're ready for him to lead it. I just want you to pray with me right now so you can commit your life to Jesus. That's why he died on the cross. He died on the cross to pay for your sins. He rose from the dead to defeat the power of sin and death and to cleanse you forever. And he wants to put his Holy Spirit inside of you. Not to just be up in heaven. You want that today. If you want to nail that down today. Just pray right after me. Just repeat these words with all your heart right after me. Just say, dear Jesus, I invite you into my heart to be my Lord and Savior. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for rising again. And I'll follow you forever. Now fill me with your Holy Spirit. And while everyone's just praying right now, if you're praying that today, I just want to pray for you. I want to pray that God fills you with his love and with his spirit. If that's you today and you're praying that, just all over the room, would you just raise your hand so I can pray for you? Just raise your hand. Awesome, 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 awesome. Who else? Just boldly raise your hand. I want to pray for you. If today you're saying, I'm giving my life to Jesus. Awesome, awesome. Hands all over this place. Lord, I thank you that you are saving these ones that are calling out to you. And today is the beginning of their new spiritual life. And I thank you that the Bible says, for he who the sun sets free is free indeed. They're going to spend eternity with you in paradise. And we celebrate the new life in Jesus' name. Prayer team, come forward really quickly. We want to pray for you if you're giving your life to Jesus. If that was you raising your hand, I'd invite you to come down. We want to give you a free book, and we're going to pray for you today. We want to give you this book to help you walk with Jesus. Also, if you have a physical issue in your body, we want to invite you to come down. We want to lay hands on you 
and pray for healing. Let's let Jesus have a chance to work a miracle in your life. If you're in a place of, of despair or you're in a place of hurt and you need prayer, you come down as well. Let's start coming now, friends. If you need prayer right now, you just start moving forward. Let's give these guys a hand as they're just coming and flowing down. We want to pray for you. And some of you are just saying, you know, I want to reflect the glory of God, but I need more boldness. I need more prayer. Just come on down right now. I'm going to need some more prayer uh, ministers. If you're a life group leader with us, if you'd come down to be ready. If you're just saying, I want to boldly represent Jesus, I want someone to lay hands on me and pray for courage and confidence as I go forth. You just come down as well. We want to pray for you. We want to partner, especially those that were giving their life to Christ. You come now as Stephen sings one last song of worship for us to close our time. Close our time.